Assalamu alaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuh. This is Abdul Nasser Jengda, and you're listening to the Qalam Podcast. The Qalam Podcast has become an important part of people's lives all around the world. There are millions of people benefiting from the podcast every single day. Thousands of hours of content, dozens of different series from all the different teachers and scholars here at Qalam. All of this is delivered to the community free of charge. We are excited and actively working to grow and increase our efforts to deliver more and more benefit to the community. We ask you to support our efforts and become part of the Qalam family. Please go to qalamfamily.com and sign up to contribute to this Sadaqah Jariyah on a monthly basis. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala accept from all of us Jazakumullahu khairan wassalamu alaykum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuhu. Bismillah walhamdulillah assalatu wassalamu ala rasulillah wa ala alihi wa ashabihi ajma'in. Assalamu alaykum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuhu everybody. Insha'Allah hopefully everyone is doing well. Uh, alhamdulillah uh, we are now moving on to our fifth week of uh, this series. Alhamdulillah. And just for context we are on... Ayah number 20. So ayah number 20 um, and uh, Surah Yusuf is 111 verses. Uh, so just kind of like, you know, putting into context where we are in terms of the story. Um, you know, this is our fifth session, inshallah. Uh, and we've done, you know, in four, we've basically been able to do five or six verses at a time. Um, again, at the end of the day, one thing that I always reiterate to everybody who's here every single week is that the goal of this class is not to rush through the surah. Um, by no means is it a, 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 a goal to, inshallah, uh, speed through it and get it done on a certain day or a certain time of the year. Uh, the goal is always to make sure that whenever we are together, when we, whenever we're going through these classes, uh, that we understand thoroughly exactly, you know, the, the, the lessons and the meanings behind each and every single ayah of the surah. Uh, so alhamdulillah, we ended off last week. So for everyone who's following along, and again, every single week I encourage everyone to always follow along, whether it's on their phones or it's on an actual hard copy of the Quran. Uh, we just finished ayah number uh, 19. And so ayah number 19, just to kind of refresh everyone's memory, ayah number 19, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, he was describing the situation uh, of the travelers. The ones who were traveling, right? The people who were traveling by and they came upon, uh, right? Uh, that there, there was a, there was a caravan of travelers who were passing by the well in which Prophet Yusuf السلام, was in. And they sent forward, right? They sent forward this person called, Right, Wadid. A Wadid, I explained last uh, week, was the, the concept of a person who basically is in charge of gathering water and food for the, for the caravan, for the travelers, right? So every single person in every, in every group that travels has certain responsibilities and certain, uh, you know, things that they have to do for the group itself, right? I mean, this is relevant to even families when we go on road trips with our, with our loved ones, right? The father is in charge of a certain thing. The mother is in charge of a certain thing. The kids are in charge of not doing anything bad, right? So uh, every single group or every single person in a group has a certain role to play when they're traveling. So the warid is a person who is out to, 
essentially gather water and provisions and food for the group that is traveling. So it says, فَأَرْسَلُوا وَارِدَهُمْ وَأَدْلَى دَلْوَى That he lowered his bucket into the well. Okay, He lowered his bucket into the well with the intention of pulling up a full bucket of water from this well. Instead, the following phrase, it says, قَالَ يَا بُشْرَى هَذَا غُلَامٌ That he lifts this bucket up from the well and up comes this young boy, right? And hence the phrase, بُشْرَى هَذَا غُلَامٌ the word Bushra, I explained to everybody. This is used for several different words in Arabic that a lot of people have heard of. Bashirun, right? Uh, Bashara. It means glad tidings or good news. Any sort of goodness that comes, it's considered Bushra. Okay? And so he says, Bushra, hadha ghulam. Hadha meaning right here in front of me is what we would call ghulam. Ghulam in Urdu also and Arabic have the same essential meaning. It's a young child, a young person, a young boy. Not only that, but someone who is strikingly beautiful, right? Someone who's strikingly beautiful, strikingly evidentially valuable, okay? So this is the immediate reaction that the Wadid has as soon as he lifts the bucket up from the well. And because of this, it says in the following phrase, uh, that he actually hid him. So when he lifted up Prophet Yusuf in this bucket, his immediate reaction was, Bushra hadha ghulam, and then immediately he began to conceal him and hide him. Okay? And we explained last week that the reason behind this is that the people who were traveling, these are travelers. Most likely they're either nomadic or they're people who are businessmen. Either way you put it, they are interested in gathering provisions and wealth, right? And so when they find a young kid who is clearly lost or misplaced or abandoned, their immediate mindset goes to there's some value to this child. Right? It's not just some, you know, there are no good Samaritans here, for example. That if a person who is well established and alhamdulillah, they're, 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 they're good with where they are in their life, they see a young child and immediately for you and I, our instinctual reaction would be, I have to return him back to wherever he belongs. If I see a six or seven year old child in the middle of nowhere, obviously away from his family and his parents, our immediate reaction is, I want to return him back. I would like to give him back to somebody who obviously is missing him. But the intention of these travelers, and specifically this, this, this warid, this traveler, he immediately thinks of this person's valuable. How can I benefit from this? So he begins to hide uh, this, 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 young, this young boy, obviously Yusuf alayhi salam. And then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala puts it at the very end of this ayah. He says, Wallahu alimun bima ya'malun. That Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, even though you are concealing him, right? That even though you are concealing him, you are trying to hide him. That Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala sees everything. And this is a huge lesson to every single person here. That there are moments in our lives where we feel that we can hide things from the public, right? And this is probably true. There's a lot of things and you know, the, the, the scholars of our tradition, they say that you know, if our deepest and darkest secrets were revealed to the public, how would that change our lives? If the public knew a very private sin that we struggled with and it was put out in display for the entire community to see, how would that change the way that we behave and the way that we are seen, our reputation? 
It would completely change the entire thing. And so Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says that even though you hide things, and it's fine, you know, hiding your sins is in fact actually encouraged in our religion. Hiding a sin is actually encouraged in our religion. It is a level better than, than, than outwardly and shamelessly sinning. That one of the diseases of the heart that a person literally does not care anymore is that they not only sin, but they sin publicly and shamelessly. So actually hiding a sin in Islam is considered more honorable than doing it so publicly. Because at least hiding a sin proves that the person who is guilty of committing it has some sort of shame. They have some sort of shame and guilt when it comes to it. And that is a level of faith. Feeling bad about a sin, Ibn Rajab rahimahullah, he says that this is one of the proofs and evidences of a working heart. That sin is, is, is something that is completely, you know, understandable for the son and daughter of Adam. There's a hadith of the Prophet ﷺ that says that every single son and daughter of Adam will sin in their lifetime. وَخَيْرُ الْخَطَّعِينَ The ones who are the best of those who sins are the tawabun, the people who repent for their sins. And one of the prerequisites for repentance is guilt. That a person cannot sincerely repent and make tawbah if they do not feel guilty about what they have done. And it's what we call lip service. That if you don't feel bad about what you did, that tawbah loses that sincerity. It loses that ikhlas, right? And so Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gives that reminder at the end of verse number 19. Now we get to verse number 20 for everyone who's following along. So in verse number 20, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, He mentions uh, in, in the beginning portion of this verse, He says, He says, and they sold him they sold him They sold him for a بخسن. What is بخس, right? We'll explain what بخس is in terms of its Arabic In fact, there are actually moments in the Quran Where you'll actually see that Quran actually explains itself Okay, so the question automatically is What is بخس? And Allah Ta'ala continues, He says, Darahima ma'duda. Darahima ma'duda. What darahima ma'duda literally means, it means a few dirhams. Just a handful. A few of them. Okay? And so, bakhs in, in, in Arabic literally means uh, just a very paltry price. Something that is not valuable at all. Okay? And there's a few different uh, opinions of literally how much that uh, they, they sold him for or they, they bought him for, right? So this specific ayah, by the way, It is referring to the selling not of Yusuf from the travelers to the next people, but of the brothers to the travelers. Everyone understand? That is the actual selling and buying that's going on right here in this verse. That the buying and selling that's happening right here is that of the brothers to the travelers. Okay? So the brothers, like I mentioned last week, they kept on checking on him, seeing, you know, like, you know, what he was doing and making sure that he was still alive, right? Because we talked about the oldest brother, Yahuda, had a little bit of a guilt in him that he didn't want the blood of his younger brother on his hands at least. So he would check on him every single day. 
And the scholars, the Mufassirun, they say that three days had gone by from the point in which they had dropped Yusuf inside of the well up until this traveling caravan, they came upon Yusuf in the well. So three days, his older brother or older brothers would basically drop by and, and, and drop some food off for their younger sibling, Yusuf And so they sold him for a, a, a small price, okay, for a small price. So dirham, silver coins, right? We, we understand this. So Abdullah ibn Mas'ud radiallahu ta'ala an, he has an opinion on, how, and, on, on what price was agreed upon for the selling of Prophet Yusuf alayhi salam. And this is an authentic riwayah, it's an authentic hadith of the Prophet sallallahu where Abdullah ibn Mas'ud, he says that the Prophet sallallahu he mentioned that he was sold for 20 dirhams. 20 dirhams, okay? 20 dirhams which each of the brothers had divided amongst themselves. Okay, so each of these brothers, they divided these 20 dirhams amongst themselves. So each person gets how many? Let's do the math here. Two, very good. Because obviously the, 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 the younger brother Benjamin was too little and Yusuf was the one that was being sold. And so 10 brothers remain. And so they sold him for 20 and they split it evenly amongst each other. And so each of them received two dirhams, which is essentially for our understanding of economics, basically next to nothing. Okay, next to nothing. They did not make any sort of uh, profit off of this exchange. And this is why, by the way, at the end of this ayah, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, He says, وَكَانُوا فِيهِ مِنَ الزَّاهِدِينَ وَكَانُوا فِيهِ مِنَ الزَّاهِدِينَ That they were those who were, regard, they regarded Yusuf alayhi salam insignificant. Zahideen comes from the word zuhud, which means to be disinterested in something. To be disinterested in something Which means that their intention at the end of the day To these travelers was not to really make any money off of them That if they really wanted to I mean This is a, you know, a tough conversation to have But back then when people were sold into slavery They would get much more monetary value Than just two dirhams per person And so this again proves That their intention was nowhere near Selling Yusuf for a, for, 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 for a monetary benefit of their own Rather, they just wanted to get rid of him as quickly as they possibly could. Why? So that their father's attention would be fully upon them. Right? That finally, after we get rid of him, this is going to be the last stage of our relationship with Yusuf. We intend to never see him again. And after these travelers have taken him, then khalas, we are done. Our job is over. That's it. There's nothing else left to do in our objective towards our brother Yusuf. He's done with us. Okay, and so the, at this point, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, He continues the, uh, the, the narrative. And you'll see here that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala completely switches gears. Where He was speaking about the buying and selling of Yusuf alayhi salam from the travelers, from the caravan. And now in ayat number 21, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, He talks about what happens to Prophet Yusuf السلام, after these travelers in fact get rid of him. So a lot of questions arise by the way. You know, what, 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 you know, how long was he in the possession of these travelers? You know, what, how did they treat him? What was his reaction? You know, how did he basically kind of, you know, handle the entire situation? And the answer is, Allahu Alam. Okay, it's a huge, uh, what we, we like to call a huge slice of humble pie. <laughs> That, that, that everyone wants to know what happens in each and every single small moment of this person's life. But Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will only give you what is necessary. 
He will not give you something that is unnecessary and, 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 and not needed for you to know. And so in ayah number 21, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, he continues and he says that وَقَالَ الَّذِي أَشْتَرَاهُ مِنْ مِصْرَ مِنْ مِصْرَ Okay, that the one who bought him from Egypt, so the one who bought him, وَقَالَ الَّذِي اشْتَرَاهُ مِنْ مِصْرَ so this person, now we understand Yusuf alayhi salam was essentially, we can infer here from the, from the gap of the story that these travelers, they did not intend to hold on to Yusuf alayhi salam. They intended to get rid of him and make some sort of monetary value. Okay, some sort of money. Their intention was money. So they sold him to this man from Egypt. Okay, لِإِمْرَأَتِهِ And this man, he said to his wife, okay? He said to his wife, Akrimi. Akrimi mathwahu asa an yanfa'ana aw nattakhidahu waladan. That he, now there's a conversation between the man who bought him and his wife, okay? The imra'atihi. So he's saying to his wife, as soon as he buys him, make his stay. His mathwa, make it graceful. His stay with us, we've purchased Yusuf now from these traveling, these traveling men. Make his stay, great, uh, his, his, his stay graceful and easy so that perhaps that we may take him as almost like a foster child. Okay? Almost like a foster child. All right? and, and from this, by the way, the scholars, they infer that the couple who had purchased Yusuf alayhi salam did not have any children of their own, right? And this, by the way, is eerily similar to another moment in Quranic history that happened with Musa alayhi salam and Fir'aun and the, the wife of Fir'aun. Where Fir'aun was, you know, uh, or, or the wife of Prophet Musa, you know, alayhi salam, uh, sorry, the, the mother of Musa alayhi salam, she floated him down the river and directly, you know, against her wildest dreams, he landed in the kingdom of Fir'aun himself. And who picked him up other than Asiya, right? Asiya, the wife of Fir'aun. And she picked him up and immediately the Quran says that she fell in love with him. She fell in love with this boy. She, 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 she wanted to keep him for her own. And had it not been for this kind of mercy between a husband and a wife, quite literally Musa salam could have probably been put to death. Because the legislation at that time of, of, of Musa was that all the boys be killed that were born that year. And so had it not been for the special relationship between a husband and a wife, Musa salam may not have survived. And thus Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala's plan is always carried through. Even through the most unlikely situations on earth. That if somebody could write, and, and I want everyone right now to really reflect, do a little bit of you know, reflection to a little bit of tadabbur in their own life. There has to been, have been a point in our own lives where we thought this is the worst possible situation that had happened to me. I cannot think of anything worse. If I could rewrite the history of my life, I would rewrite it in so many different ways. But because it happened to play out this way, there was something beautiful that was born from that situation. There was something uncanny that grew from that unlikely situation. Musa alayhi salam was raised in a home that was very, very capable of, of, of bringing him up in, in wealth. Not only that, 
He was taken in by a, 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 a mother, a foster mother, Asiya, who was not nursing because she had no children of her own. So it forced Musa to have to be nursed by the people around town and eventually was returned back to his own mother. And in this story specifically, that, that, that Yusuf was sold to this husband and a wife, who were they? We'll talk about this right now, inshallah. Who were these people? These people were essentially very rich people in the land of Egypt. And Mufti Shafi Osmani, one of the most you know, profound scholars in the subcontinent, he says that the essential role of the man who bought Yusuf was the equivalent of almost like a financial minister of Egypt. He was the financial minister, not a, the financial minister of Egypt. So he was in charge of almost all the economic movements in that entire land. And so Allah made it so that he would be the one that would buy Yusuf alayhi salam. And so at this point, at this point, he tells his wife, and by the way, there's a few kind of, you know, uh, we, we, and by the way, in, in tafsir knowledge, there's a couple of different sources of where scholars, they derive certain information from. The majority of the information that you will hear in this class will be from authentic sources, which are obviously from hadith of the Prophet or in other portions of the Quran that explain uh, these certain ayat. There's also another component which we do not take for any aqidah purposes, but we listen to them because there may be some point of benefit from it. And this is called something called Isra'iliyat. These are stories that are basically uh, historically agreed upon from the other cultures and, and people even outside of the hadith, hadith literature and Quranic literature, okay? So one of the scholars they mention, and there's, there's obviously no, there, there, there's no aqidah involved in this, meaning that it's not going to be something that makes or breaks your faith. But some of the scholars, they say that the name of this man who picked up Yusuf salam and bought him, his name was uh, Qitfir. Qitfir, or another person says it was Itfir, okay? And so this was allegedly his name, and he spoke to his wife, and there's basically two different opinions on the name of, of, of his wife, and the most uh, authentic, one of them is Ra'il, but the most authentic one is that her name was Zulaikha. okay? Her name was Zulaikha. Now, the reason why we believe that this man was actually not the king is because later on in this story, we find out the actual king is a different person. And in fact, the king later on becomes a believer, is a believer in la ilaha illallah because he believed in the message of Yusuf alayhi salam, right? So the king is a person that comes later. This person is more of like a chief financial minister, okay? And so he tells his wife, he tells his wife to make his stay something very, very comfortable, okay? Make his stay something very, very comfortable. Now, at this point, of the story, Allah mentions that, uh, you know, after he tells his, his wife to make his stay comfortable, that perhaps Asa, uh, uh, that, that he may be a prophet to us or we may uh, 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 take him as a, an adopted son, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, he continues on to establish what we're already all thinking. He says, وَكَذَلِكَ مَكَّنَّا لِيُوسُفَ فِي الْأَرْضِ Okay, min ta'wil al-ahadith. 
Okay, he says, thus we have established Makanna li Yusuf fil Ard. That everyone right so far is wondering how is this story even possible? A young boy stripped away from his family, dropped by his brothers, sold to a caravan, now traveled to this land of Egypt, a foreign land, bought by this chief financial minister. Allah Ta'ala, he says, وَكَذَلِكَ مَكَّنَّا لِيُوسُفَ فِي الْأَرْضِ And thus we have established Yusuf in the land. What more questions do you have? What more questions do you have? Isn't it even a miracle that this boy is alive? Isn't it even just a miracle that he's alive and well? Not only that, but he's being taken care of by quite literally some of the wealthiest people in the land. And so Allah Ta'ala, He says that on top of that at this point, min ahadith, That we might teach him the interpretation of events. And this is basically uh, Allah Subh'anaHu Wa Ta'ala's favor upon Yusuf salam that later on he will be able to interpret dreams. And so Allah Ta'ala, he continues and he says, وَاللَّهُ غَالِبٌ عَلَىٰ أَمْرِهِ Allah has full power and control over all of his affairs. Anytime, and, and this by the way, the scholars, they mentioned that this was a reconciliation to the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. That Allah is ghalib. He is ghalib ala amrihi. He's in control over every situation. And I mentioned this last class of people remember, that it brings solace to the heart of a believer. That the same one who is in charge of the good that happens in our lives is the same one that is in charge of the challenges that go on in your life as well. So the scholars, they say, whenever you have a tough time in your life, remember the good times in your life. So if the same one is giving you those, those difficult moments, the same one that he give you your most joyous memories in your life, think about how he can get you out of these situations very easily. And so the Prophet ﷺ, the one who's going through this persecution and abuse and assault from the Quraysh in Mecca, he's hearing this wahi coming to him from Jibreel ﷺ about the story of Yusuf ﷺ. And it's an incredible consolation to his heart. There was another example of this in the life of the Prophet ﷺ when he was going through Isra wal Mi'raj. And through the different levels of heaven, he met the other prophets and Yusuf being one of them. And we talked about this last week, how Yusuf alayhi this is where we get the narration, the Prophet he said that Yusuf had been given half of the beauty of all creation and Allah had given the rest of the half of the beauty to, the, to everything else. That Yusuf alayhi had received half of Allah's beauty of his creation. And in the same narration, the Prophet as he was ascending higher and higher and higher, he met Musa alayhi salam. And when he met Musa alayhi salam, the Prophet sallallahu he said that Musa alayhi salam was crying. He was the only Prophet of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that did not greet the Prophet sallallahu alayhi with a smile. All the other, all the other, uh, all the other uh, uh, Prophets, they all greeted the Prophet sallallahu with a smile and a salamu alaykum. When the Prophet sallallahu went to Prophet Musa, he, he met him, Musa alayhi salam was crying. And so he asks, Ya Musa, what, what are all these tears? What's the meaning of all these tears that are flowing down your, your, from your eyes? And Musa salam he says, Verily, there has come a prophet that will have more followers than even I did. And Musa salam statistically up until that time was the one who had the largest ummah. Known as Bani Israel. And so after Musa salam the only prophet that came that would have a following that is even larger than the Bani Israel is the Ummah of the Prophet Muhammad And so 
these were Allah's different ways of consoling His beloved. That there is emotional support that was even needed by the prophets of God. That they were protected beyond any single one of us would be protected, but even they need emotional consoling. And this is a part of what makes all of them human beings. And so at this point, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, He mentions, وَلَكِنَّ أَكْثَرَ النَّاسِ لَا يَعْلَمُونَ that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is ghalib ala amrihi. He has control over everything. But he says, But people, majority of people do not know these things. They lose sight of these things. During good times, they're happy. During bad times, they're sad. There's a famous line in Surah Al-Fajr that I love reciting. And I actually taught this to my students on Saturday. I know Maryam's back here, so she probably already knows this. In Surah Al-Fajr, we went over an ayah in the Qur'an where Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, He mentions, فَأَمَّا الْإِنسَانُ إِذَا مَبْتَلَاهُ رَبُّهُ فَأَكْرَمَهُ وَنَعَمَهُ فَيَقُولُ رَبِّ أَكْرَمًا And it's describing a group of people that whenever something good happens to them, they're elated. Everyone's happy. When good things happen, everything's great. But Allah ta'ala says in the following ayah, وَأَمَّا إِذَا مَبْتَلَاهُ فَقَدَرَ عَلَيْهِ رِزْقَهُ فَيَقُولُ رَبِّ the moment that something unfortunate happens, they immediately say, why me? Why me? During good times, it's great, right? I deserve this stuff, right? I worked hard in my life. Everything you know, that, I, that I'm doing, I earned. But when bad things happen, I unfortunately change the narrative and I say, oh Allah, why did you, why did you decide to test me? Never do we ask the question when something good happens to us, why me? Right? We get a raise at work or alhamdulillah something really amazing happens for our family and you know, some of our you know, deepest du'as get accepted. Never do we ask, oh Allah, why did you accept my du'a? Oh Allah, why did you give me this raise? We have a billion excuses and, 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 and logical reasons as to why good things happen to us. But Allah reminds us in the Qur'an. But when something bad happens to you, the immediate thing is, oh, why did this happen to me? I'm such a good person. You know, it's not fair. Life isn't fair. All these different things. So Allah says, Wallahu ghalibun ala amrihi. That Allah is watching over everything. He has control over everything. But the majority of people, they forget this truth in their life. They forget that every single leaf that falls only happens with the knowledge of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Every moment that there is an argumentation in the family, it happens with the knowledge of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Every dollar that is lost happens because of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala's knowledge. Every calamity that takes place. I'm sure a lot of us have been tracking the, the, the destruction that's going on in Florida right now. The hurricane, the category four hurricane that literally made landfall earlier today in Florida. How can this happen? How can this take place? There's so many questions that people have. Why would Allah allow this to happen? The same Allah that allowed that to happen is the same Allah that allows people to be wealthy and healthy and happy even though they don't believe in Him. So the human nature is very quick to ask questions about when quote-unquote bad things happen. When when things good happen that we have no logical explanation for, never do we ask the reason why. Or ask the question why. And so Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala reminds us in that beautiful, beautiful ayah. So then, in verse number 22... Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala now describes Yusuf alayhi salam growing. He's gaining development now in his life. So Allah ta'ala, he mentions, he says, 
When Yusuf السلام, he attained manhood, ashuddahu. When, when, when he became a grown man, balaga ashuddahu, ataynahu hukman wa ilman. That Allah Ta'ala, He says that when Yusuf السلام, reached adulthood, we gave him two things. What are those two things? Hukman wa ilman. Very good. Hukam, wisdom, and ilm is knowledge, right? And I mentioned this to everybody in the fir- probably the first or second week of class, I believe. What do those two things in the Quran indicate? It means the coming of prophethood. Okay? That the scholars they say that whenever hukman wa ilman is coupled in the Quran, there's a harmonious togetherness of these two descriptions. It most likely 99.9% of the times when it's referring to a prophet of Allah, it means that they received nubuwa at that time. They were officially uh, you know, given the title of, of, of Nabi of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Okay? So that the, so that Yusuf alayhi salam at this point he reached that age. Now, the question is, what is that age? Right? The scholars, they have a few different opinions on this. Abdullah ibn Abbas, the, the giant of Quran, right? Abdullah ibn Abbas radiallahu ta'ala an, along with Abdullah ibn Mas'ud and Abdullah ibn Umar. These are, by the way, are the three Abdullahs that we, to be quite honest with you, if you want any authentic uh, explanation of any ayah in the Quran, read any of their descriptions and it'll probably be authentic. Ibn Abbas, Ibn Umar and Ibn Mas'ud, these three. So Abdullah ibn Abbas, he says that Yusuf alayhi salam, وَلَمَّا بَلَغَ أَشُدَّهُ How old was he when Allah described this? Ibn Abbas, he says that he was age 33. He was 33 years of age. So you think about it, right? That we said that he was sold and, and dropped in a well and all these things when he was like a, ch- what a child, ghulam, right? Six, seven, eight years old maximum. And now he's 33, right? So like 25 years have passed. A long time has passed. Imagine two and a half decades have gone by. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gives him nubuwa at the age of 33, according to Ibn Abbas. There are a couple of other scholars, Hassan al-Basri, rahimahullah. He says that, that he uh, achieved this stat, the status of nubuwa at age 40. At age 40. Hassan al-Bashri, by the way, is a scholar who actually believes in the riwayat that says that all prophets officially receive their nubuwa at age 40. Just like the Prophet When they reach 40, they officially receive their, their prophethood from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Now, which of these opinions is correct? Allahu alam, but Abdullah ibn Abbas radiallahu ta'ala is the one that is officially a little bit more uh, in terms of just Quranic reflection and, 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 and tafsir a little bit more reliable, right? So either way, he was an older man at this point, okay? And, you know, one of the most profound things to reflect over this, and this is something that I always, always share whenever we talk about coming of age as a prophet, you know, this society we live in, and there's something problematic here, which is we like to give people leadership roles and titles before they're in fact ready. And this is unfortunate, it happens a lot. That in our day and age, and I can guarantee you every single person in here has heard of like leadership retreats and leadership conferences and leadership workshops and all these different things. But you know what we are lacking in? Our workshops and conferences and seminars on how to be followers. 
If everybody in the world is a leader, who are they going to lead? There has to be etiquette and adab and, and, and qualities of a person who can follow somebody. You know, Ali ibn Abi Talib had an incredible quote. An incredible quote. You want to hear this? Beautiful. During the time of Abu Bakr and Umar, the, 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 the rule of, 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 of the leaders, the Khalifas at that time, were just absolutely like pinpoint. Amazing. No sort of like, you know, uh, disagreements, no major riffraff between the leaders and their followers. At the time of Uthman and Ali, things began to get a little bit chippy. Things began to get a little bit, you know, uh, there, there was some conflict between followers and leaders at that time. And so one of the followers during the caliphate of Ali radiallahu an, he came up to Ali with a complaint. He says, Ya Ali ibn Abi Talib. He said, during the time of Abu Bakr and Umar radiallahu an, there was such harmony between people of the leadership status and the people of the followership. Look at what, we're, what, what, what we have to deal with now. Look at all the problems we're dealing with now. You know what Ali radiallahu an said? And this is why Ali radiallahu an sometimes has the best quotes in, 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 in Islamic history. You know what he said? He said, you know why? You know why things are the way they are right now? Because at the time of Abu Bakr and Umar, they had followers like me. And at my time, I have followers like you. <laughs> Does that, do we understand this? It, it, it's, it's comedic to a certain degree, but it's very serious to a certain degree as well. That at the time of Abu Bakr and Umar, and even go further up to the Prophet ﷺ, when a leader said something, is It was, I hear and I obey. And I hear and I obey because I trust my leaders to like completely handle these situations because there's such rapport with my leaders. But at the time of Ali radiallahu an, the followers were the ones who were lacking. Questioning every single small thing that would happen. Oh, why is it like this? Why are the masjid carpets red and not blue? Why do we have to have Jum'ah at 1.30 and not 1.45? Why does Isha have to be at 8.45 and not 9 o'clock? Everything's a question. And unfortunately, when everything is a question, we start losing the trust that we have with the people that are in charge of us. And in fact, one of the requisites of a follower is that you trust that the one who is in charge of you has good, sincere nature when they're making decisions for the, for, for the greater mass community. That if there is, a, there is a decision that's made that is against the decision that I would make, I'm not, I'm not thinking that this was like a, a, a heinous decision that was out to get me. It was a decision that was made because this person is thinking of everybody and although they would do it differently than I would, I'm not going to think differently of their intention. And this is what Ali said, when Abu Bakr and Umar were in charge, they had followers like me and when I'm in charge, I have followers like you. So in order to have a harmonious community, we have to understand that it not only requires great leadership, it requires great following as well. It requires tremendous following. And this is something that is very, very important. And, that, and this is why my main point that I was coming to is that Nabuwa was given after the training was completed. If you look at the life of the Prophet ﷺ, he reached Nabuwa at age... 40. When did the Prophet pass away? 63. He was only a prophet for 23 years. And this was Khairul Khalq, the best of all creation. If anyone could have been a prophet since he was like a teenager, it would have been this man. Yet Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gave him prophethood at 40 years of age. 
What does that mean? For 40 years of this man's life, there was something that we call in Arabic, tarbiyah, which means development, training, learning, polishing, making sure that when it's time for you to do your thing, you are ready for it. It's not just like a weekend workshop. You hear some great TED talk from a random dude that traveled to your city from out of town. And now, mashallah, khatam, here we go. You're ready to go. It takes training, years of training. And this is why, you know, we always say when it comes to taking Islamic knowledge from people, please don't do it from people that you don't know. Please don't do it from people that you don't know. Unfortunately, we have this mass ability to look up any Islamic concept that we want to on the internet. And any random guy or, or woman can go up and put a mas'ala on anything. But when you ask, hey, where did you learn this from? Oh, I have no idea. I actually read it in like a thread. <laughs> That's not how Islam was preserved. Islam was preserved from sitting at the feet of your teachers. And your teachers would sit at the feet of their teachers. And they would sit at the feet of their teachers, at the feet of their teachers, at the feet of their teachers, up until a companion sat at the feet of the Prophet ﷺ, and they learned directly from him. And so this stage, it takes developing, okay? It takes a lot of development. And so one of the most amazing things, and I'll mention this inshallah and we'll end here, is that the, uh, uh, one of the most amazing narration from Abdullah ibn Mas'ud radiallahu ta'ala an, he said that uh, there were three moments in Islamic history where there was beautiful insight, Beautiful insight. One of them was when the daughters of Shu'aib told their father to hire Musa as his worker. And eventually, this essentially made the marriage of one of his daughters to Musa. They said, Ya Abati, uh, uh, right? Hire him. Hire him and, and so that he may work for us. And this is in Surah Al Qasas. Okay? The second one that Abdullah ibn Mas'ud he mentions is when Abu Bakr as-Siddiq he pointed Umar ibn al-Khattab as the Khalifa. This is one of the most beautiful decisions that was made. That Abu Bakr as-Siddiq he appointed Umar ibn al-Khattab as Khalifa after him. And the last one that Abdullah ibn Mas'ud he mentions here is the Aziz of Egypt telling his wife to make the stay of Yusuf alayhi salam very very comfortable. That's th- that these three decisions, this is authentic riwayah, that these three decisions ended up being some of the most insightful decisions that were made in prophetic history and in Islamic history. That this man, he told his wife, Akrimi amathwahu, make his stay very noble, very dignified, very comfortable. And so Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, he says, That we established Yusuf in this earth. And inshallah, uh, we will pause there because the next, uh, the next chapter begins with the next official challenge in the life of Yusuf alayhi salam, uh, which inshallah is in verse number 23, where we find out about uh, one of the most um, difficult tests that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala had given Yusuf alayhi salam in his life, which was the uh, shahwa of Zulaikha, the, the one who basically helped essentially raise him from childhood to adulthood was the same one that sought to uh, exploit him
for her own uh, you know, human desires. So inshallah, we are going to uh, talk about that next uh, Wednesday, bi'ithnillahi ta'ala. A very, very, um, and I encourage you know, everyone to join, honestly, next Wednesday, not only because it, obviously it's a beautiful surah, but next week's conversations will tackle a lot of the common relative issues that we see in today's day and age when it comes to lust and desire. We're going to address a lot of this stuff next week, inshallah. If any parents are here concerned about like, you know, their children growing up in, a, you know, in an environment like this where you know, lust and desire and morality is all very, very kind of ambiguous and you know, how do we you know, honestly carry ourselves as Muslims, next week, inshallah, there's going to be a very, very relevant lesson on how Yusuf himself, in fact, actually kept that, uh, that, that challenge, that test away from him and the actions that he took to basically uh, keep it at bay. And inshallah, it'll be proving very, very beneficial for everybody. We ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to allow us to benefit from uh, today's class. We ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to allow us to be people who uh, benefit from his Quran. We ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to make us of the people who, when we read the Quran, that the Quran is a proof for us and not against us on the day of judgment. And we ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to allow us to grow in our development, grow in our iman, grow in our ihsan with each and every single letter that we recite from the Quran and we ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to accept from us all. Ameen Rabbil Alameen. Subhanakallahumma wa bihamdik wa nashadu an la ilaha illa ant nastaghfiruka wa natubu